welcome to The Legal Hour, uh, produced by GetLegal.com. Uh, I'm Keith Spencer. I'm a board-certified family law attorney with Bailey and & Gallion, and with me is Jane Mapes. Jane is a longtime practitioner of family law. We are here today on behalf of uh, our law firm, Bailey & Gallion, to answer questions that you folks might have regarding family law matters. That is exclusively what Jane and I work in. Uh, we work for the firm Bailey and Gallion. Uh, Bailey and Gallion has numerous offices throughout the Metroplex and down in Houston. Uh, we offer a 10% discount to teachers, military personnel, and first responders off of their initial retainers. We have free consult consultations for folks who come in to ask us a legal question. Don't want you to have to pay us money to, to be able to find out if you have an issue that needs assistance. And we have evening availables, uh, evening appointments available uh, for folks who need those. So today we want to talk about family law. <clears throat> and family law is one of those areas where the emotions tend to run pretty high. And folks are frequently the recipients of well-intended but erroneous information. Uh, the, their co-workers, the fellows at the bowling alley, uh, all mean well, but generally speaking, they're giving you really poor advice, all right? Um, so one of the questions that we hear a lot deals with mediation, and we'll jump into that. If you have questions, please feel free uh, to uh, send us an email question, and we'll be happy to try and, and answer that while we're on the air today. We'll be here for about an hour. Mediation. <clears throat> Jane, a lot of folks ask, why do I have to go to mediation and what is it? Um, I found mediation to be a very helpful tool. What are, what are your thoughts? I absolutely agree. Mm -hmm. um, mediation is generally ordered in any family law case that is on a path to go to trial. And one of the beauties of mediation is it allows the parties to fashion their own settlement agreement without in involving the court and it keeps the family in their own hands, to, so to speak. Because when you go to court and you have a judge who doesn't know you, who has maybe seen you once or twice in your entire life, and that judge has seen thousands of other families, and really, although they care and they're very fair-minded and we have amazing judges in the Metroplex, they don't know your family, they don't know you, they don't know your children. So when you're in a mediation, you can have actual, you know, input into what the order is going to say and how the um, rules of the game basically are going to play out over your children's lives, and at least until they're 18 or out of high school. And also, mediation obviously isn't just for child-related issues, but for property division issues. Um, I was in a mediation yesterday that lasted about six and a half hours on a million dollar estate, no children, the children had already grown, but we were able to, over that period of time, to divide the estate in a way where both the husband and wife were satisfied, and they divided their estate the way they wanted to, they didn't have a judge come in and say, you've got to sell this, you've got to sell that, and we were able to arrive at a mediated settlement agreement at that time which we all signed and is absolutely enforceable as um, an order of the court once it's reduced to a final decree of divorce. 
So, yeah, I think the best part about mediation is the autonomy that it gives the clients to really have an impact on the result of their case. I like to tell folks that <clears throat> going to court is better than using a gun to settle the dispute. That's why we invented the court system. Uh, but it should be the last resort because going to court is, is just that much better than using a gun to settle the dispute. As Jane was saying, <clears throat> no one's going to have as much information uh, and knowledge about the facts of your case as you will, okay? So why not use that superior knowledge? The other point is, and Jane was alluding to this with the estate, is you have a million dollar estate. You want to divide it. No matter how good a job the attorneys do, the judge will never understand as much as you. And the judge is limited to uh, various tools for accomplishing his task uh, or her task of dividing the estate. And they have guidelines that the legislature has imposed upon them. That doesn't leave them the freedom to craft the kind of agreement the parties can that takes into consideration tax issues, cash flow issues, work hours, uh, which uh, extracurricular activities the kids can be engaged in, that sort of thing. So you get a much better result by mediating and the courts require, most courts require, parties to go to at least one mediation session prior to the court investing the time in having a trial. Now, the other thing to remember is that in the larger jurisdictions, you may have to wait months and months and months to get a final trial. And if the outcome is relatively predictable, as it usually is, then why would you want to spend tens of thousands of dollars fighting over $500 a year from now and, and spend all that lawyer time and all that energy and all that, uh, that emotion? Uh, most cases settle. I would say, Jane, about 95% of the cases settle before trial anyway. Absolutely. Okay? And so a lot of them will settle even without mediation. Before you ever get to mediation, the outcome is so clear to everyone that the parties can sit down and, and mediate and settle the case. The nice thing about that, of course, is that you've saved a lot of money. And what Jane and I try to do, and most good attorneys try to do, <clears throat> is help the parties resolve this issue with their dignity intact and most of their money still in their pocket. Uh, you want a best fit kind of model uh, for your kids and for your estate and there's a lot of tools available to get there uh, but in most cases once you hire an attorney and your spouse hires an attorney and everybody talks and compares what the assets are and what the circumstances are with kids it's pretty clear what the judge is likely to do if you have a trial a year from now on these facts. Uh, and, and knowing that, there's, there's really no good reason to waste all that time and money and heartache on a long process. Oh, I agree. I agree 100%. And um, another beauty of mediation is you get to choose your mediator. That's true. The attorneys can agree upon a mediator and usually because of the the pool of talented mediators, um, shall I say, we have a lot of retired judges who mediate. We have um, attorneys who've been specializing in mediation for the past 10 or 20 years and they are, you know, experienced family lawyers who know um, basically what 
each judge is going to do in a particular case and the mediator's temperament can be chosen to fit your case and to fit you know the needs of each individual client so it's you know you're you're in a situation where you have somebody who's not only very knowledgeable but who's going to take the time to sit with you and your client individually and go over what all your concerns are, what your client's concerns are, so that when we're adapting or adopting a mediated settlement agreement, it really is absolutely tailored to your specific family and the issues that you each have, whereby, as Keith said, a judge can come in and, like a cannon, just blow up um, you, you know, the, the, uh, the courtroom, and we have to take whatever it is they leave us. A lot of judges will tell you, that must have been a great decision, they're both mad at me. <laughs> okay. Now, a lot of folks don't understand how mediation works, and so let's, let's cover that for a little bit. Uh, when you go to mediation these days, as Jane suggested, we usually choose our mediator based upon the case. So if you have a, a case that may have some really complex tax considerations, there are certain mediators we know who have real expertise in that area can, and can help guide the parties, okay? Uh, some, some folks uh, uh, have a medical background, and if you have uh, medical issues with the children, sometimes that can be very helpful. But when we go to a mediation, generally speaking, the parties are not sitting across the table from each other. And some folks would find that terribly uncomfortable. And we have found over the years that it's not terribly productive to do it that way. Uh, most of the mediations I attend, my client and I are in one room, uh, the opposing party and, and their attorney is in the other room, and the mediator runs back and forth like Kissinger at <laughs> Detente, uh trying to structure a deal. Now, <clears throat> as Jane alluded to, we use retired judges frequently as mediators because they have such a wealth of experience. But in their capacity as a mediator, they are not a judge and they make no decisions, and they don't make any evidentiary rulings or anything else. They try to help you broker a deal. Now, Jane's been using a term that's really important, and it's called mediated settlement agreement. Under the law, a mediated settlement agreement gets special treatment, and if the parties sign a mediated settlement agreement, then it is enforceable like a court order and the case is over, the uh, agreement is irrevocable, and all the attorneys have to do is, is draft a final decree that mirrors the statements of the MSA. That's important, that it's irrevocable, you've got a deal. Occasionally a client will come in to me and say, we already went and mediated, and uh, we haven't filed for divorce or anything like that yet, but we went and spent $5,000 with this, this mediator who had us come back 14 times and pay them a lot of money, and we hammered out an agreement. So I just want you to enforce that. Here's the problem. It's unenforceable. A mediated settlement agreement has to settle the case that is pending in the court, and it has to be filed with the court to be irrevocable. You can sit down and mediate the daylights out of everything for months uh, and then when you file the divorce to, to try and actually settle the case, either party can renege at any moment. And it's just a shame to see people spending a lot of money because it hasn't been explained to them that 
there's a proper way to do the mediation and it needs to be in coordination with the court. The state gave you a marriage, a wedding license, etc. Only the state can take it away. There is no such thing as an internet divorce. All right, absolutely. Um, and Keith makes an excellent point because, you know, mediation is used as a, just a common term and people say, well, we're mediating our differences. But when we're talking about a mediation in a family law case, under the family code rules, um, there are strict guidelines that have to be followed, as Keith said, in order for the mediated settlement agreement to be um, enforceable. And recent case law has shown us that they are, um, judges must enforce the terms of the mediated settlement agreement and also must um, enter a final order that does conform to the mediated settlement agreement, basically but no matter only what. Only if it's done properly. Right. If it, if if it has all of the, um, meets all of the requirements of the family code and if it's signed by the parties and it has to have Filed. special language in it indicating that it is indeed irrevocable. Uh, it has to employ a, a mediator. Uh, there's a lot of uh, necessary aspects to these mediation orders. And I find people get so disappointed when they find out that uh, the, the mediation they spent money on is not really helpful to them and their spouse starts backing out of the deal. Um, one one question people ask a lot is, is why do divorces cost so much? Uh, my standard response to that and joke is because it's worth it. Uh, divorce today has gotten to be a lot more complex than it was in the past. Uh, there are so many issues that, that have to be accomplished. A standard divorce decree today, if you have children, is probably going to run between 35 and 55 pages. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and there are a lot of requirements that the court has uh, on, on how these things are done. Uh, special requirements regarding child support issues, visitation issues, how we're going to construct the division of property and, and that sort of thing. Uh, lawyers charge by the hour for their time because we can't simply sell documents, okay? Uh, and some of these documents are complex. Now there are really good ways for a client to assist his counsel and make this a much more cost-effective and inexpensive proposition. Uh, if you will provide your attorney with the documents that they require, if you will answer the discovery that is posed, uh, if you will meet with your attorney and tell them what your priorities are. The fact of the matter is no one's going to walk in a courtroom and hit a home run on every pitch. No one is going to win every issue. Uh, sometimes people will tell me, oh, well, you know, once the judge hears, he wore white after Labor Day. <laughs> yeah, he's going to throw that law book out the window and, and they're going to give me everything I want. Have you ever seen that happen? Not yet. Uh, so, what you need to do is meet with your attorney uh, and, and figure out what your priorities are. And, and that leads us into the whole issue about temporary orders. Um, for most clients in a family law matter, 
temporary orders will be the only hearing they have before the court. Uh, it is imperative that if you have an opportunity, you meet with your attorney and you structure what your presentation is going to be for the court. Too many times a client will come in and, and see me and say, I got a trial tomorrow. I need someone to go with me. Obviously, and it's four o'clock in the afternoon, and they're supposed to be in trial at, at 8.30 the next morning. There's very little time to prepare everything that needs to be prepared for these, these people. Um, or their spouse has filed the divorce, and they've just been served and just find out about it. Now, if you're filing the divorce, you've got all kinds of time to prepare and dot your I's and cross your T's and make sure that you have polished up your presentation so that when you go into court, you're ready to make your case. If you're the respondent and you just found out about this, life is a whole lot different, Jane. Absolutely. I always tell clients that there are two parties, well, of course there are two parties in the divorce, but there are two separate scenarios in every divorce. There's the, the person who files the divorce, the petitioner, who has made the decision to file for divorce and has usually already made the emotional separation from their spouse. And then there's the spouse who gets served with the divorce petition. Oh, wait a minute, baby, we can talk. <laughs> it doesn't have to be this way. Right. Well, I'll meet you for coffee and then we'll talk about it. But actually, so there's the spouse who's kind of the deer in the headlights who had no idea that a divorce was going to be pending and also didn't know that the relationship was over. So you're dealing with one person who presumably has a lot of um, power, let's say, and another party who is still in shock. And when we represent the party who has been filed against, who has just been served with divorce papers, they're um, definitely in an emotional crisis. And one of the most important um, you know, uh, aspects of our job is to counsel the person properly and to you know, bring them to a place where they can be rational before they go into the courtroom and face, you know, their estranged spouse because it's a very, you know, it's a highly emotionally charged situation and people don't make good decisions from an emotional place. You know, you have to make, a good decision is made from a rational place. Hopefully your attorney is going to be rational as well as, well, the attorney on the other side. So, you know, that certainly um, helps and, and the attorneys can help diffuse whatever you know, kind of emotional um, unrest there might be um, and, and it's the hard. Parties. It's hard not to be emotional when the most important things to you and in your life are on the line. Your children, your life's work, your home, uh, all of your savings, uh, where, where your kids are going to go to school. Everything can be on the line and so it's very, very frightening. Um, We've talked about the fact that 95% of the cases settle before they get to trial and that the temporary orders hearing is frequently the only hearing the client ever gets to in front of the court. Part of the reason for that is that once everyone has come back to reality uh, and, and found out that, okay, no matter what, that parent is going to get to see the children, there is going to be some child support 
there is going to be a division of the estate, and, and yes, the retirement package is community property, then people can sometimes settle down and, and you know, put their heads together and come up with a better way to, to accomplish the task. Um, there's a lot of pop psychology out there about folks who find out they have a terminal disease and they go through stages of grief, uh, of denial and anger and, oh man, if, if, if you let me live, I'll, I'll never drink again, okay? Uh, and that's why we have a 60-day waiting period to get a divorce in Texas so that someone can kind of work their way. The, the party who files the divorce has already worked through all of that. They're ready to go. They've made a decision. The, the respondent is, is going to have to play some catch-up here, okay? Now, temporary orders are just that. We're not dividing the property forever. We're not making permanent decisions about the children. But the outcome of these temporary orders can be very important in the final outcome of the case. Right. Um, and it kind of sets the stage for folks going to mediation, okay? When you're in court for temporary orders, most of the judges are trying to figure out how can we maintain the status quo. We don't want the children changing schools three times and changing addresses three times. We don't want to mess up the family business. Uh, what, what the court is generally trying to do is put a Band-Aid on that will keep everything together prevent someone from losing their mind and going and, and moving all the bank accounts to the Bahamas or selling the bass boat to their brother-in-law for $12. And, and silliness like that. People get silly when they're emotional. Absolutely. And um, so the temporary orders hearing, as Keith said, is the first and usually the only time that your clients are going to be in front of the judge. And it is definitely frightening for them. It's For most people, it's the first time that they're in a courtroom. And in some of the counties that we work in, we have district judges who hear both the temporary orders and the final order. And a district courtroom is a very formal and imposing kind of a place. And so you have your client who has never been in this arena before, and they're going to be sitting in a witness box and you have your judge up on the bench and your court reporter and your jury box and and it's a very very formal serious kind of um, atmosphere so the first thing we want to do is when we um, speak to we always meet with our clients to prepare for a temporary orders hearing mm -hmm. it's the most important thing that we can do mm -hmm. after we have our initial consultation with our client where we elicit the information that we need to know about the case, at least on you know a surface level, but we must then prepare the client for the temporary orders hearing and we're going to need to have a minimum of an hour consultation to prep the client so that they know what to expect when they do go into the courtroom. Now, there are very specific rules that are in place for what we need to bring to a temporary orders hearing and Keith and I both know that you can't walk into a temporary orders hearing without these certain documents and you want to have all your ducks in a row so what we normally do is we prepare a temporary orders hearing notebook which has different 
sections of all of the items that we know we're going to be called upon to use during the hearing. But the person who's giving us the guts of this notebook is really our client, and we're garnering that information from them at this consultation where we prepare for the temporary orders. And we're going to need their financial information, we're going to need some tax returns, we're going to need pay stubs, we're going to need a lot of information that's very sensitive and very personal that people aren't used to sharing mm -hmm. with strangers. And it's, it's not polite to say, how much money do you make? <laughs> okay, but the court really has to know. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, it, it's definitely a, um, a, a breach of somebody's privacy and personal um, information and affairs, but when you're in a family law case, when you're in a divorce, or if you're in a case just involving children or a modification of a prior divorce order, nothing is sacred. Everything has to come out into the open and must be disclosed to the other side and, of course, to the judge. One of the things that, that people tend to forget, Jane and I are in court almost every day, all right? And we're comfortable there. But the number one fear in America is public speaking. And add just a little more stress to that, you know, you're in a witness stand in an unfamiliar setting. There's a gallery full of people listening to, to you air your, your family laundry. Uh, and everything that you care about in your life is on the line. No pressure, okay? It's, it's hard for people. As Jane was saying, add to that, you have to discuss some of the most personal and intimate information about your life that you may not really want to share with everyone else. Another good reason to try mediation. Uh, and you have to have these documents. Now, when, when we go to court every morning and we walk in and check in with the court and say, we're here, we have a hearing at 9 o'clock, we're ready, the bailiff will tell us, Get in line, I have 15 other cases ahead of you. That happens. Sometimes the, the clients are not aware that that's going to happen. I've had cases, I know you have too. We show up, we're here. Oh, I'm so sorry the judge fell ill today. Uh, you won't be able to have the hearing, we'll have to have it reset. Uh, clients need to be aware that these courts have a very busy docket and they have to move through them. And so it is not, not at all uncommon for us to show up there at 8.30 or 9 o'clock and be told you're going to have to come back at 1.30 because we have a special hearing ahead of you. So, one, you, you may be there having to wait a little while. Uh, and two, it points out a real difficulty. There's a lot of folks who have found do-it-yourself forms online. Uh, and they think this would be an inexpensive way uh, to handle this case and I don't have to spend money on a lawyer, and we can just get through this. Here's the difficulty with that. Uh, the state bar and every reputable attorney will tell you that those do-it-yourself forms are only good in very rare cases. If you are newlywed, college graduates, you have one old car and a cool stereo, you're <laughs> renting your apartment and you have no children, you may be able to get away with it, okay? It will still be difficult, but you may be able to get away with it. 
But if you have children or you have real estate or you have some kind of a complex estate or some kind of an issue uh, that's uh, just a, a bit unusual, then it will be very, very difficult for you to handle this yourself. We go in in the mornings for our temporary orders hearings and the judge may have 15 or 20 people ahead of us called pro se litigants, which is a $5 Latin term for they ain't got no attorney. All right? And rarely, rarely, and we sit there and watch them time and time again, their documents are incorrect, they, there's no way the judge can proceed, and the judge is not allowed to tell you everything that's wrong because he's not allowed to practice law. And so you say, go home, try again, and come back. And so there's a lot of that that goes on. Now, if you're pro se and you're trying to do your own attorney uh, work, the problem that you have is that the court has to treat you like an attorney. Between Jane and I, we have about 60 years of experience in family law trying cases just like this. And the judge is going to require you to meet the same standards that Jane and I have to meet and the judge is only allowed to base their decision on admissible evidence. And if for no other reason than admissible evidence standards, you need an attorney. Because just telling the judge what a skunk the spouse is, is not going to help the judge a bit. It may be interesting, it may be colorful, it may even be fun. But it gives the judge no admissible evidence to be able to make some of their decisions, uh, particularly about where the kids are going to be and child support and who's going to have temporary use of the business while the case is pending. Absolutely. Yes, and um, besides the fact that Keith just made me feel very old with the <laughs> 30 years of practicing law. Most um, of those are mine. <laughs> but um, not only is it... Uh, difficult to expect you, you know, expect a pro se litigant to know any of the terms of art that we use in the courtroom or to know the procedures. They become argumentative sometimes. And you have people who are arguing with each other, and a judge is sitting on the bench and, you know, looking at the litigant saying, I can't work with this. I've had, I've had courts have, have a situation like this. Not only is it, okay, they don't understand the rules of evidence or procedure, but the judge will say, all right, Mr. Smith, do you have any witnesses you want to call? I don't know. I, I don't think so. If he doesn't call any witnesses, he's not putting on any evidence, all right? And you've tied the, hands court, the court's hands. Even if the judge wants to give you the relief that you're requesting, Without evidence, they can't. They have to follow the rules. They don't get to make things up as they go. That's just not the way this works. Right. And what, when we go to a temporary orders hearing, as Keith said, there will be 10 or 15 other cases on the docket besides ours. And of course, this one poor judge isn't going to hear 10 or 15 cases in the three hours between 9 o'clock and noon because, trust me, at noon, they want to have lunch. So they're out the door, most of them. But what they'll do is, in order to speed up their dockets and to thin out the number of cases that they actually have to hear each morning, is they're going to suggest to the attorneys that they go out into the hallway 
and try to work on an agreement between the parties so that they don't actually have to have a hearing. Now, this is tricky sometimes for the lawyer because number one, you have a client who wants to have their day in court and they want to tell their story. As soon to as the judge. judge hears what a skunk they are. Exactly. Ordinarily, when we have the option, as attorneys, we like to talk to the other counsel first, okay, and spare everyone some of this. If we're going to go down to the courthouse, stand in line, go pay for parking, uh, and, and scare everyone and have to get all dressed up, if it's an easy question that, that Jane and, or I could handle with a phone call to the other attorney, there's no reason to spend that time, money, or energy to do that. Um, too many times we get down to the courthouse and the other side is there and their attorney is there or maybe they just hired their attorney the day before, okay? Uh, and we are able to work things out, okay? Uh, so if you have any possibility, you want to meet with your attorney first. You don't want to try this uh, on your own without an attorney. Uh, and there's lots of attorneys in all kinds of price ranges, all right? Uh, many, many times uh, with simple divorces, uh, the cost is just not that much. Uh, and if you're dealing with your home, and let's say it's worth $100,000, uh, and, and you need to spend $2,000 to protect that while you're going through this, that's kind of a no-brainer, all right? Uh, recognize that uh, when you get down there, it, it, you're better off having talked to your, your, your client uh, before the temporary orders and, if possible, to the other side, all right? Remember... We're talking about temporary use of property. It's, it's not all fixed and, and that sort of thing, but it can have a big impact on, on what the status quo is going to be for your case. Um, you need to pick the issues that are most important to you. You may not win every issue. No one ever does. All right? Now, this raises a question sometimes. Mm -hmm. Some attorneys or some clients will ask, why were you so friendly with that other attorney? I want a bulldog. I want someone who's going to go there and be mean and, and ugly and snarl at the other side. Uh, I don't snarl much. Do you snarl much? <laughs> Not usually, no. And the, the fact is that there are a finite, although it seems ever-increasing, number <laughs> of attorneys in family law in the counties in which we practice, and we're going to have cases against the same attorneys year in and year out. So you get to know these people. Some of them could be your best friends. Some of them are just, you know, colleagues that you're well acquainted with. But in order to, number one, in order to make a deal with somebody, you have to be reasonable. You have to be civil. You have to be polite. And you have to get along. And we have, we have legal obligations. Uh, the Texas Supreme Court has adopted what is called the Lawyer's Creed that requires attorneys to be professional and to be cordial and to not pick meaningless fights that don't need to be picked and not to waste time or try to make the other side spend more money just because. Right. All right? Uh, to grant reasonable uh, continuances when they're needed. All right? And so uh, clients need to be aware that there are times when an attorney is going to have to make some reasonable continuance or, or, or uh, modifications or accommodations for the other side and for the court. 
and they are legally obligated to do so. It doesn't mean that they're working for the other team, uh, they're just professionals trying to do the job. Uh, someone has written in asking uh, if there's a benefit for a parent to get a divorce when there are issues about uh, Social Security and other benefits for special needs children. Um, that's a difficult question to answer. Um, in Texas, we have no-fault divorce. You don't have to prove anything to get a divorce except that you want one, all right? Uh, occasionally we see some legislation of people wanting to go back to the bad old days where you had to, to make up some reason uh, why, why the divorce should be granted uh, and that wasn't very helpful. But all you have to do is, is uh, ask for a divorce and, and say it's you know, a, a conflict of personalities and you get a divorce. We were talking about the fact that the court has limited authority. The court is a state court they have no authority over Social Security. Uh, they have no authority over most of the other kinds of governmental benefits that might be available to, to deal with special circumstances, either disabilities or special medical needs or things like that. Again, that's the kind of case that points out that talky-talky uh, is better than fight-fight, okay? Uh, because you're trying to come up with a plan that will allow you to financially accommodate the needs of your child. Um, generally speaking, uh, I'm not uh, off the top of my head aware of any real benefits to, to doing that as a married couple versus as a divorced couple, but there are experts that we frequently employ who are experts in those kinds of areas. Another area like that may be uh, with regard to, to military pay. Uh, a military pay stub and the benefits associated with those things are, are very difficult to read and they change in a heartbeat. Sure. Uh, and so frequently, uh, Jane and I will employ experts uh, to try and help a client find uh, a reasonable way to get there. Okay, um, also with respect, just to throw in something um, in, in response to that last question, when, when you do have a child with special needs and you're going through a divorce, you may have heard about what we call the guidelines for child support in Texas, and child support in Texas is calculated in accordance with um, a percentage of the paying parent's income less taxes and less health insurance and now dental insurance coverage for children. But if a child has special needs and if special needs can be proven to the court in a very specific and um, correct way, then it's possible for child support to be ordered to be paid by the paying parent over the guidelines dependent upon what the proven special needs of the child are and also that has to take into consideration both parents' incomes. So each case, each family is going to have its own little, um, you know, its own special characteristic and there are, as Keith alluded to, there are other areas of law that we need to employ sometimes in our cases because we have these special circumstances. There are many times when we have to um, decide custody issues, or custody issues are a main focus of the case. And 
custody issues aren't decided based upon the parent's testimony. So you're not going to be able to just tell the judge why you think that you're the better parent or why the child should reside with you. We have to employ outside experts, psychologists or social workers, who will do child custody evaluations in order to get the relevant information in front of the court. So that's, an, you know, that's another avenue of, of help that a family lawyer will employ in order to resolve a custody dispute. It also drives home the point that uh, a man who represents himself in court has a fool for a client, okay, because the technical requirements for introducing expert evidence, particularly in a child custody case, are overwhelming to someone who is not very, very experienced in that. And if you don't do it the right way, your expert will not be allowed to testify. All right? And again, what can the court base their decision on? Admitted testimony. Okay? If it's not admissible, it doesn't help you and you don't get there. Uh, one thing that people tend to forget <clears throat> parents divorce sometimes children do not all right and for the most part 20 years ago lots of cases said all right this parent gets sole custody all right that almost never happens anymore okay the preference of the law is to have joint custody now what does that mean it means both parents share in the rights and duties of raising the child. The child has frequent and continuing access with both parents. Um, and we work together to co-parent the child. The goal is that there's not a winner and a loser, all right? Um, so when we are dealing with issues of temporary access, um, it's very important to let your attorney know what your work hours are, how often you have to travel, where is the child's school, uh, does the child have any special needs, uh, if there is, I've had children who have feeding tubes, all right, and is everyone trained to take care of that? What are we going to do about daycare or after school care or those kinds of things? When you are going to court to present your case to the judge, you want to have all of those uh, ducks in a row. It is You don't wait until after the hearing say, well, Judge, I guess if I get custody, I'm going to have to find some daycare. Uh, that's not going to help you, okay? You need to have it nailed down. Judge, here is my plan for if the child is residing with me on these days of the week and the other parent on the other days, this is my child care plan. Here's what we do if I come down with the flu and I'm not able to care for my child or get him to school. Here's uh, you know the, the specially highly rated uh, aftercare program where they do their homework and they get a snack and, and, and we pick them up at six o'clock and that won't be any problem. Uh, you need to have all of those things buttoned down where the court knows what's happening. In those in those uh, same veins, we hear a lot about relocation cases. That's a Judges very hate relocation topic. cases. Why is that, Jane? Well, first of all, the Family Code and the courts in Texas have a preference that when parents separate, the, the amount of contact that the child should have with both parents 
should be as frequent and as, as continuing as they possibly can. So what we normally see in our family law cases is what we call a geographic restriction. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that if you've got a, a typical, let's say, old school custody order which gives one parent the right to designate the child's primary residence, that residence will be restricted to the county in which the parent and child are living at the time the divorce is filed and surrounding counties. So the reason for that, obviously, is to keep both parents in as close proximity to their children as you possibly can. Now, frequently, one parent says, well, I don't have any support here in Texas. I don't have family here. My family's in Arkansas. If I get divorced, then I have to move back to Arkansas so that my mom can help me raise my child. Well, that is not going to happen. And sometimes it's a, it's a very serious matter, and it's not easy to tell your client, you ain't moving to Arkansas. You're not taking the child out of Tarrant County and surrounding counties so long as, sorry, no. so long as dad continues to reside in Tarrant County and surrounding counties. And, and that's very hard for some people to understand because they're grown-ups, okay? They have constitutional rights. The court cannot prevent mama from moving to Arkansas, but the court can say the baby is staying here, all right? So if that's the case, are you still going to move to Arkansas or not? Most of the time they decide, no, I'll find a way to do it here. Some folks, frankly, are more interested in winning than in making sure that their child has the benefit of, of access to both parents, and they want to move to California because you know, they met someone on the internet and uh, you know it's love, okay? Uh, the court is unlikely to do that. The general rule is we do not let children relocate a far distance from their parents. And so, as Jane alluded to, if you're in Tarrant County, you might be able to live in Dallas County, you might be able to live in Parker County, uh, but you couldn't live down in Waco or Austin or, you know, Seattle uh, because uh, the court wants to protect the child's right to see both parents. And so it's a, it's a really harsh thing. Most judges will tell you they despise having to do relocation cases because no matter what decision they make, they're ruining someone's life, all right? Uh, being a judge is a hard job. They, they get some really tough questions that they have to deal with. But the, the relocation is hard. Now, for years and years and years, people have felt like there was a gender issue in family law. They've heard all the country western songs about she got the gold mine, I got the shaft, <laughs> you're the reason our kids are ugly. All of those country songs that seem to indicate that, you know, mamas always win. Well, that's not the case anymore. Uh, in fact, the, the family code requires that the court be gender neutral. They cannot take into consideration the gender of the parents when they're making a custody determination. The test is, and always has been, what is in the best interest of the child. So if, if your mom comes in and she's your client, she says, well, I need custody because I'm the mother and mothers have to have custody. That is not the end of the equation 
And that can't be an argument that the court can listen to and, and rely upon in making a decision like this. The test has to be what's in the best interest of the child. Uh, sometimes that's, that's a difficult uh, thing for people to consider. Absolutely. And sometimes it, it just turns right around on the overprotective mother. Mm -hmm. um, because the judge sees that attitude and sees the fact that this person may keep the child from the other parent, and for that reason alone, the father can be awarded primary custody, sometimes on a temporary or sometimes on a permanent basis. And um, also, what we have right now, you know, with the changing character of family law from a national level down to a state level, We've got same-sex parents. We do. Um, we have same-sex adoptions. We have families mm -hmm. that the people who started writing the family code back in the 1970s had, would never have imagined. Right. And the law is, has to evolve in order to meet the changing needs of the population. Um, also, we do have what's called a standard possession order with respect to what times and what days each parent gets to spend with the child. But the trend now seems to be moving more toward a shared or equal parenting schedule with children. Now the courts cannot order that because that's not the preference and that's not the law today. But, but there is there is a, a group of legislative committees that are working on that and have been for a number of years. The legislature just hasn't adopted it yet. Right. It will happen. Mm -hmm. Within the next five years, we're going to have a, a huge shift in the access and possession laws and schedules. But again, going back to our original um, topic of mediation, when you're in a mediation, you can come up with your own schedule. We can have parents who do a week-on, week-off schedule with children. Parents will, who will do two nights with one parent, three nights with the other parent, and then flip it the following week. I mean, there are a lot of permutations of different access and possession schedules that you can come up with if you're flexible and open-minded and willing to work with the other parent. And obviously that's what is in your children's best interest because the worst thing to hear or listen to is a child who is torn between parents who are warring over custody or any other kinds of decisions regarding you know the child's future. Many judges have told me that in close cases uh, they look to the, the, the issue of which parent do they think is more likely to encourage and facilitate a healthy relationship with the other parent, okay? So, if you've got one parent who is trying to alienate the children from the other parent, or is bad-mouthing the other parent, putting the child in a really difficult spot, then that's something that the court will consider in trying to, to figure out what is in the best interest of the child. And so, it behooves everyone to insulate the children from the warfare and and not try to, to coach the children to saying certain things. Uh, children need to be children. Remember, you're divorcing, the kids are not. Now, one thing that frequently happens when people are considering uh, a 50-50 or almost equal uh, child possession order 
is someone says, well, then I guess we just get rid of child support. Uh, no, that's usually not the way that works. Now, when we're doing a situation like that, it's going to be very fact-specific, all right? Uh, when a court is dealing with a circumstance where the parties have agreed they want to do a week-on, week-off, or, or something like that, then the court will have to fashion a child support remedy to make sure that the child's not eating bologna at one house and caviar at the other, okay? You want to have a level playing field for the child, okay? And it's not based just upon how much time folks have. So I see a lot of judges use kind of an offset method where they will uh, calculate what the child support would be if one parent was paying the full guidelines, what the other parent would be paying, and then they'll do an offset and find some middle ground between them. But as Jane mentioned, these issues can get very complicated because you may have a lot of, you have a lot of folks with two working parents, yes. all right? So you have additional issues of after-school care, daycare, what if the child has special needs? Uh, what are we going to do about select soccer, okay? <laughs> and all of the costs that go along with that. So again, the parents are in a better position to make these decisions if they just will. There will be times when you have to go to court for a decision. Uh, maybe the other parent uh, has a mental health issue or a drug problem or there's a violence problem in the relationship where talking is not as productive as we wish, but those are the rarer cases. Thank Most you. couples can sit down and find a solution. Yeah, absolutely. Um, unfortunately, we do run into um, families that have very serious issues, either substance abuse alcoholism or mental health issues. Mm -hmm. So what we are talking about really is the mainstream right. family where you have two fit, healthy parents. And that's where most of us are. <coughs> oh, bless you. Uh, that's where most of us are. Um, very quick analysis, grandparents' rights. Uh, we've only got a few minutes left, but grandparents in Texas... Okay. Grandparents have very limited rights in Texas at this time. Uh, and, and that's really because the state has decided that parents need to raise their biological children unless there is something really, really wrong. So the fact that, that grandma's more stable or, or has uh, a bigger house or uh, availability of a better school is not going to win the day in a case like that. Uh, unless there is something really wrong that prevents the parents from being able to raise their child, uh, then the parents are the only ones who have standing in these cases. And frequently, let's face it, grandparents are frequently the most stabilizing uh, influence in, in a relationship and, and in the, the children's lives. But it's really, really hard under the law for grandparents to intervene too much in the parents of right to raise their own children uh, and be with their children. Um, prenuptial agreements are, are something that, that family law attorneys handle all the time. Uh, the nice thing about a prenuptial agreement is that from the get-go, let's face it, every marriage is going to end, either by death or by divorce. There is nothing that is unromantic about talking with your partner about how you want your property to uh, be taken care of in the event of a death or a divorce. Uh, it, what it does is it allows the parties to make the decisions rather than a judge or 
the attorney for heirs who might have inherited from a deceased spouse. Uh, so it really is the smart thing to do to sit down and talk with your partner about a premarital agreement if you're contemplating marriage. And if you're already married but you have some special issues in your estate, you can talk to them about a partitioning agreement, which is essentially the same thing as a prenuptial agreement, but for folks who are already married. Uh, frequently, as, as we move through life, our circumstances change a lot. We may have to uh, uh, find some ways to, uh, to address our estate and our children's needs without necessarily having to go to the court. And so that's one of the things we, we try to accomplish. Another issue that we are exploring these days is the difference between formal and informal marriages. And today, we're making those, those uh, uh, decisions about cases involving same-gender couples as well. All right? And so with an informal marriage, the question may become, when did the marriage commence? And uh, what are we going to do about retirement accounts that were earned during that period of time? Uh, what are we going to do about insurance provisions? Things like that. Uh, it is still a, a new issue in the court uh, that we're having to deal with re with regard to same-gender marriages uh, because the law hasn't really contemplated that for a long time. And now that the Supreme Court has, has uh, uh, ruled that same-gender <coughs> marriages are entitled to the same protections and the same processes as uh, as uh, the marriages of the past, then it opens up some whole new windows that, that we have to consider in terms of how are we going to handle retirement and that sort of thing. Um, I can't stress enough that what really needs to happen if you are in a situation where you may be finding yourself in family court you need to consult with an attorney. Now, our firm at Bailey & Gallion um, offers free consultations so that you can come in and visit with a, an experienced family law attorney to discuss what's going on in, in your life, what your facts are, what kind of special considerations may arrive in your case, and you can talk to an attorney at length for free. We offer Saturday morning interviews for people who need those. We have late-night interviews uh, for, for folks who need those, uh, and they're free interviews. We want you to have the ability to ask a question. Frequently, folks come see me, and I tell them, you don't need an attorney right now, but if this or that happens, you may want to come back and chat with me some more. Or I can tell them, if you'll take care of this, it'll probably take care of your problem. So a free consultation is, is one of the benefits that we offer. As I stated when we began, we offer a 10% discount to teachers, military personnel, and first responders off of their initial retainer, and we try to make as many free appointments uh, available to people as possible. We have locations throughout the Metroplex to try and be at your service. Thank you for being with us today while we discuss the roles of family law. We'll see you again soon. Yeah.